Yeah, that's something that I've been um, digging into more of this year is like the execution of a funnel in a very effective way. Yeah. Um, it, it's it's not my favorite thing, if I'm be honest with you, but I do understand that it's important to have. So figure yeah. it out. Well, there's um, like some people just do live events and some people is, you know, just do podcasts. Um, some people just do writing, et cetera. And you're, you're doing a little bit of a few things. Um, it's kind of a weird analogy that just popped in my head, but um, I've, I've, there's this movie, like it's kind of a silly disaster movie where they have to like drill down into the center of the earth and like detonate some nuclear weapons to like get the core like spinning again. Do you remember that? I, I, I don't know if I've seen that, but I, I know there are several themes like that. So I, I forget what it's called, but uh, center of the earth or something like that. Um, and uh, there's like a mathematical equation for where you need to detonate in order to have like the shock waves, like create this thing. So that's kind of what I was thinking about as far as like what, what you're doing. It's like, you've got the events, you've got the podcast, you've got your, your writing and whatever, whatever else you're, you're providing or participating in. Um, and then it just keeps people not just in that ecosystem, but like increasingly engaged in that ecosystem. Right. So that's kind of the, the thing. And I, I think, in a weird way, it really is like, it's not zero sum as it might think either. Cause like a lot of people are saying the same thing, um, but it seems like the appetite is limitless because we're all growing. So if, as long as you're attuned to who you are, um, what you wanna do, cause if you're doing what you wanna do, you're gonna be fairly competitive, um, difficult to, to emulate, um, able to, to persevere to the degree the, at the degree to which you'll need to. Um, so all that stuff, I mean, I, I see it as kind of a win-win. Oh yeah. It's been, it's been rewarding. I think my reflection of 2023 coming into this year was that um, I was giving a shared effort to so many different projects. And in 2024, I want to have more of a focused effort on fewer projects. So uh, one of the things that I've been working on within the last two weeks is telling people no, which I didn't realize was so difficult because I'm I'm constantly in a mode of I'm ready to help out where it's needed, right? So if somebody comes to me, they're like, hey, I want to collaborate on this or hey, I want, you know, can you do this? My default answer is usually yes. Yeah. But um, I'm reading this book right now called The 12 Week Year. Okay. And it talks a lot about um, like having these kind of like guardrails in your focus where if if that thing does not align to what your goal is, then, then it, it needs to be pushed, pushed out in the list of priorities. So um, I've had, man, a handful of people within just since January 1st come to me and are like, hey, can you, do you want to collaborate on this or can you do this? And I'm like, I have to like temperature check this to see, is it moving me closer towards my goals or right. is it distracting me from my goals? And um, it's 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 liberating <laughs> because I'm not saying yes to so many things, but I feel like this tension of, am I gonna disappoint this person by saying no, like I can't, I'm not gonna be a part of your project. Yeah, it's not like a permanent no. That's just the uh, not now, right in this moment. I, I'm I'm not saying yes to this, so I'm getting used to that. That's uh, but it's an it's an interesting thing for me, certainly. Yeah, no, I I share that. Um, take this with a pinch of salt, which you probably will, because I mean I'm trying to I'm going to make like a grand statement. I realize there's probably exceptions, but I think um, we're judged more on where we uh, fall short rather than where we um deliver what's promised. So if I don't have something that you deliver and then you deliver it, I'm like, oh, Rakeem's awesome. Like, yeah, I'd recommend you and all this sort of stuff. But if I'm like a regular customer, I just get used to that deliverable, right? I, the first week you were a lifesaver, but then I just expect that of you always. Mm -hmm. um, and so then I, uh, my mind only remembers the parts where you disappoint me, where you go down from what my expectation was. Right. Um, so if you promise yes to a bunch of people and then you know, whatever. I mean, life happens or you just wind up having to put 80% in one week instead of 100% for whatever reason. Uh, I think that could diminish your brand and your reputation more than the initial no. 
the initial no, yeah, there's that short term like, oh, okay, well, I guess we're not as good of friends as I thought we were or, you know, whatever. Um, but then it's like, there is a respect there. Um, as, you know, as long as you're respectful with it. Um, like, no, you idiot or something. I mean, maybe that would uh, be different. But yes. um, <laughs> it's it's also like the, the chips are still like with you. So like if you do say yes later, it actually is more valuable. Um, and uh, it allows you to focus on the things that you already said yes to. Yeah. Yeah, I'm realizing that, um, and I'm very careful about how I say my no. It's not just like no, like, um, usually the phrasing is exactly what I shared with you. I have to check to see if this is aligned with what my goals are for this period. Um, and if it's not aligned, then I can share that. And if it is aligned, then you know I can feel comfortable moving forward. But um, I realize through a mentor of mine, and also just kind of through self reflection, that. I um, am a natural kind of creative. Like I like to start new projects and it's not, um, it's not with the intent to monetize necessarily that drives me in the completion of those projects, even if that is a goal, but it is the satisfaction of bringing that project into fruition that I get the most joy from. And so I'll start all of these different projects and then it becomes like, okay, like, what is this going to be done? What is this going to be done? What is that going to be done? Um, and while all of that is happening as distractions, because I might have like a central core goal that I'm focused on, uh, other people are asking me to jump on their projects. And so um, I, my, I think my default speed is, okay, well, let me get this out of the way for them really quickly and that I'll have all the time in the world to come back to my project. But that's not true. You don't have all the time in the world. And... Um, I just, I realized like in this year uh, for me to hit my goals in my business, um, in my personal brand, I need to be very focused and very selfish on the time that I allocate towards accomplishing those goals. And that um, once those goals are checked off, then I can be available to other people. But it's, it's like that concept of putting on, you know, the, um, the mask when the, with the plane, putting on the, the safety mask or. Oh, yeah before you go and help somebody else. And um, that is, uh, that's the that's the learning curve. So I, uh, in the two weeks that have passed through this year, like, like you said, I feel initially bad, but then I feel really good because I'm not burdened by, all right, I gotta worry about meeting somebody else's deadline or somebody else's expectation or um, delivering on this deliverable. I can focus on what is important to me. And, um, and I have felt like, I've had a lot more time because of that to focus on the things that I need to focus on. So yeah. Um, like you said, it's a good day to, I, I like that. It's a good day to learn this lesson. <laughs> I just realized something listening to you. I don't think I had an idea often when I say, when I, when I have difficulty saying no, what my goals are, you know, like that, uh, the term, like having your North star, mm -hmm. I think that helps align because like you said earlier on, if it's uh, serving your mission, if you will, um, then it's a little easier to, to uh, assess if this is this a benefit or is this a distraction or you know a burden. But if you don't know, I, how, how could you make that judgment call? Right. And so I think that adds to the anxiety of making that decision. So would you say that perhaps it's first a good idea to understand where you're going? Absolutely. Having a very specific idea about what your North Star is or what your goals are, because generally I knew what it is that I wanted to accomplish. And sure, from a certain perspective, any project that kind of sounds like it would fit into that goal makes sense, right? So let's just say, you know, for the sake of this year, my number one goal is financial. I want to hit this number in revenue. Somebody comes to me and says, hey, I have a um, an affiliate program that speaks the same language that you do, right? It's around financial education. It's around financial wellness. Um, do you want to be involved? From a certain perspective, I can say, well, yeah, you know, that is aligned to my goal because I can make money off of this. But am I now dedicating myself to spending so much time pushing somebody else's product to make an, an affiliate income off of it, which could be 50% or less off of those profits, 
where I could be spending a hundred percent of my time and energy on doing the things that give me a hundred percent of the results in my business. And I think it's a delicate balancing act because certainly collaboration is key. Like, um, there's an analogy that I've heard, you know, you can have a hundred percent of a great, or you can have 25% of a watermelon, right? Like getting more from the watermelon than you are from the grape. And so I'm conscious of, well, yes, if I can make money um, and spend less time on what outcomes look like and I could get 50% of that versus, you know, 100% of nothing, that makes sense. But for me, um, being very specific in what goals I want to accomplish as a financial counselor, as a financial therapist, as a writer, as a speaker, like those are kind of like the core pillars of my business model. And so pushing somebody else's product doesn't move that needle for me in terms of develop uh, business development in those ways, because I'm happy to refer to their framework. So, um, so yeah, I mean that, that's kind of the real life, the real life scenario. Um, I, I am more focused this year on making sure that the top revenue generators for me are in financial coaching or B2B consulting on the topic of financial wellness through speaking um, and introducing financial therapy to people as a, a different service. Um, but, you know, it's an emerging field. So getting people to kind of know what it is and that that's something that I offer. You say emerging field, but you're the first person I heard it from. Are you the originator of it or are there other people um, uh, in this space as well? Yeah, there are a ton of people in the space. Um, okay. But I mean, that's relative, right? So I think financial therapy is just under 30 years old, probably in the range of 20 to maybe 25 years old. And um, so that's most of my life <laughs> that it's around. But it's it's kind of existed behind the scenes very much in the realm of academia and you know there are practitioners who kind of incorporate it into their work but it's still being defined and so um some of the conversations that i've had with other financial therapists is like everything that we do is pioneering like everything that we do is new um what's interesting about financial therapy for me in that um, I stumbled into the field, first of all, very much by accident, but also I'm a very public facing individual with my brand, right? So I'm talking about financial therapy in my Forbes column. More people are gonna gonna hear financial therapy for the first time. They're like, what is that? Um, so part of the success that I've had in kind of the field is bringing forward financial therapy as, um, as a true discipline and amplifying the work of people who have contributed to the field before me, uh, while of course introducing my own spin and interpretation to you know how financial therapy is important and how that shows up through the lens of my lived experience tied into the education and um, the, the practice really with other people. I see. Writing for Forbes, do you have to change any of your kind of structure or the way that you would uh, write in order to fit that um, brand, I suppose, going back to what you talked about when you make a decision on whether or not to collaborate with someone? Or do they pretty much give you free reign where you can just write for them as you would for your own blog, let's say? Um, that's a good question. It's kind of a combination of both. So um, they give me free reign. Like if I can publish whenever I want to, I don't have to send it by an editor or anything like that. Um, nice. I have an editor that I work with and um, I will send my editor my articles after they're published and he will give me feedback. Like he'll say, oh, you know, maybe you could change the title this way or maybe you can uh, change the structure this way. Like usually the edits are very light um, and they're uh, more formatting of uh, edits than anything else. So where, you know, I might have a, style of using commas and semicolons in a certain way for the style guide may require something different. Right. So, um, but I think that, you know, to, to the other point, um, I'm conscious of Forbes audience and, uh, I have my own sensitivity to, um, what may get some pushback 
And so to that end, um, because I'm going into it as an experienced writer, I just kind of know the areas that I won't touch and where I will have kind of more freedom in my expression on my own like newsletter. Um, there's certain topics that I'll say, you know what, this is a newsletter topic. The way that I'm going to talk about this, I don't want any edits um, versus, you know, like I said, understanding Forbes audience, I'm going to structure it in a more favorable fashion to what their audience is looking for. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, choosing, it's almost like choosing a language, like choosing which uh, audience or which platform you want to uh, communicate through. When you mentioned the grape and the watermelon, I had this image of like when AI starts making our food, we have like this uh, grape watermelon hybrid and maybe like other things like that. Have you ever thought about that? I have not. Um, I'm not really a big fan of tampering with food. <laughs> so I do know that um, certainly, particularly with produce, there has been um, domestication of certain varieties of foods that we eat that, you know, we don't know what the true like bananas, you know, like bananas have been domesticated in a way that, you know, we have now bananas in the way that we eat them. Right. Um, my understanding is that the original bananas had seeds in them, um, many seeds in them. And so um, it's interesting kind of as time goes on, because I think like the generation of kids who are growing up now are um, are experiencing foods in a way that we haven't like um, seedless grapes. Right. Like when I was growing up, grapes had seeds in them. Now they don't. It's very hard to find grapes that have seeds in them or watermelon. So like we're right. the same thing, right? Uh, yeah. Watermelon now in the stores mostly don't have um, seeds. And if they do, they're not viable seeds that you can plant. Um, and so it's interesting to kind of see um, and even kind of like, um, like remember back to a time when uh, tomatoes tasted this way or, you know, watermelon tasted this way and uh, and I have friends, and I've certainly I've traveled internationally. I have friends who've traveled internationally, certainly more recently than I have. And they're like, the quality of food in different countries is very different than the quality of food here. Um, and when we're speaking about produce specifically, um, it's just so interesting to see um, what the quality of food, like in terms of taste, looks like in other countries versus in the U.S. or even within the U.S. Um, because I garden. Um, what the quality of food tastes like when I grow it myself versus grabbing it from the grocery store. And I would guess it tastes a little bit better. Way better. When you grow it yourself. <laughs> so no, no? Way better. Um, I think some of that has to do with the fact that I grew it. So it's just like, oh man, like I watched this, you know, thing. Positive bias. Yeah. But, um, but there is definitely noticeable differences. Like I think tomatoes is a really good example. Uh, I grow tomatoes every year. And some seasons I have great seasons and some seasons I don't. But um, it, it's just always so much of a joy to eat a tomato that I grow versus a tomato that I buy from the store. <laughs> well, going back to the reasons of why you're doing something, I what I understand could be wrong, uh, but with the modification of, let's say, tomatoes uh, in the U.S., they were trying to make them tough so they wouldn't crush. I guess the problem was with like truck delivery and stuff, truck transport, they'd uh, stock crates and whatever is a little bit rough and they'd just be like, you know, um, ragu instead of like tomatoes anymore. And so when I went, my experience was uh, in Italy, like a little corner store had a tomato and like my eyes watered, it was so delicious. Uh, I was like, what's all this flavor I've been missing out on? Because our tomatoes were bulletproof. Like they're meant to like stop bullets basically. Um, I mean like not being crushed, super tough. And uh so it's like the reason there might be a little deviation from what humans' food should be. Like maybe our food can be crushable. Like maybe we should think of a different uh, solution there, um, one could argue. And so I think maybe like taking out the seeds could be a good decision. However, do we adequately understand what the seeds uh, contribute? Because there could be some sort of nutrition. Like when you start tampering with things, I think with everything, there's a cost benefit, a plus and minus, and you don't always know the cost incurred with that decision, um, I'm thinking of this. Um, have you heard of uh, ayahuasca? Yes. There's another, um, uh, I, I don't know what we call it, like a root or like an herb called iboga from uh, Western Africa, I believe. 
and um, the shamans there um, use it for similar kind of uh, uh, procedures or experiences. <laughs> and it like kind of, you know, can take the mind on a journey and you wind up um, healed or better than you would by being on a prescription medication for a long indeterminate amount of time. Uh, and so they, I think in the West and certain areas, they um, uh, packaged that and, and called it, I think, ibogaine. I'm not sure if the pronunciation is right, but they basically took out some of the ingredients because of the way that it's classified. Like that would make it, um, I believe, like legal. But then in so doing, they made it less like effective holistically because, you know, surprise, surprise, <laughs> nature knew best. Um, and so it's, it's just interesting because I like the fact that we can fly in airplanes and nature said that, you know, maybe we're not supposed to fly as monkeys. Um, but at the same time, it seems like it, it gives us the, these minds that allow us to invent things that can help us fly. But it, 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 those minds sometimes get us into trouble at the same time. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, I see that in almost every area, right, that we touch. Um, microwave, as an example, certainly speaks to convenience. And I think all of you know what we've discussed speaks to convenience, like giving us more conveniences. Um, seeded grapes are inconvenient, right? Like you got to spit out the seeds. I mean, some people eat them, but most people spit out the seeds. But like you said, there's that trade-off, right? And um, as somebody who is learning about gardening, um, it's it's quite disappointing to me that there's so much uh, produce that have sterilized sterilized seeds because, you know, in order for me to get viable seeds that I could keep using over and over again, I have to like buy them separately. And if, and I think that that you know certainly is kind of a symptom of capitalism and you know controlling the flow of food, right? But um, it's like you said, it's the trade-off. So um, I think these skills and um, the ability to reflect on what is the trade-off in looking for convenience, like using the microwave, is something that tries to avoid doing because um, while, yes, you can warm up food and water a lot quicker, you know, what is the health implications of using the microwave over X period of years? Um, how is it kind of neutralizing or eliminating the, the benefits of the food that you're eating? Um, and so is there a nutritional value in food that you microwave or food that is specifically created to be microwaved? Um, you know, the list goes on and on and on. So right. uh, I own a microwave. Um, I'm ashamed to say, <laughs> but I do attempt uh, more often than not to use alternative methods to rewarm food. Yeah. And um, that is kind of like my contribution to my to my future self, right? Like, okay, I'm going to limit the microwave exposure in my food. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. And uh, I read or heard that there's like information in our genes that um, gets stored for, for like a while, for multiple generations. So like decisions you make now, uh, you know, you're distant. Uh, relatives uh, could be benefiting or paying for. Um, and re regarding cooking, uh, similarly, I, I try to limit microwave use. Uh, but I've also uh, came across uh, this article talking about um, losing some nutritional value of vegetables uh, through the cooking process. So you want to, again, balance. I think sometimes it's it's good to cook the heat, but maybe not overdoing it. So now I'm like, uh, I mean, I don't have a perfect like science to it but i i just i'm like aware of that like oh maybe i shouldn't overcook these carrots or overcook that spinach i want to get get the good stuff so uh have you considered that at all oh yeah i um so interestingly enough i had covid for the first time in october october november and um i grew up really kind of um I don't want to say anti-medicine, but pro-herbs, right? Pro-natural pro solutions to boosting your immunity. And one of the things that my grandfather would often talk about is like the versatility of garlic, especially in helping you heal. And so I'm like, all right, cool. Like, I'm just going to load up on garlic. And so I'm, I'm taking garlic cloves and I'm crushing them and then I'm putting them into... Uh, this soup that I'm doing, like this broth that I'm making. And I'm like, I'm just going to eat up a bunch of garlic. And then I read it, something similar to what you read, that garlic's um, 
natural kind of antibiotic features are activated by crushing the garlic and um, allowing kind of like the reaction of the air to whatever the chemical that exists within the garlic. But you take away from the effectiveness of its ability to help heal by cooking it. And so like if you are going to cook garlic, then you should probably like add it last and don't overcook it like you said like you're not cooking the garlic into the dish you are just allowing the garlic to get warm in you know whatever like so in my case it was the broth or the soup or you're you know better off eating the garlic roll which it's not easy to do right like <laughs> eating garlic roll me like it burns my tongue and Exactly. I could do like one or two cloves and then, or whatever those, the segments are. And it's, it's nice. Cause it's like this kick, but something happens. There's some kind of chemical like reaction, like a, a, a mercury switch kind of thing where I, I think it's around the third little wedge where all of a sudden, like something activates in my like mouth. It's like, ah, like, it's almost like when you get a hit with sabi or something. Yeah. Yes. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. But it's also addicting at the same time. Like I, it's like this love hate relationship for the garlic. Yeah. Um, garlic, cayenne pepper, I've heard as well, is very um, beneficial to like immunity and just different things. Um, okay. But, but it, again, it depends on how you prepare it um, and, you know, whether or not you're cooking out that benefit. So, um, yeah, spot on with, with that. I'm, I'm just of the, the things that I eat. And, and certainly, I mean, in instances where I'm not looking for, the immune boosting properties of garlic then i'll cook it all the way in like sauces or other meals because you know the flavor of garlic is is also nice um but you got to know like what you're looking for from this particular food item and are you helping you know allow it to do what it's supposed to do or are you taking from that so to map that to our previous conversation, once again, you have your North Star. Am I using the garlic for its texture, or for its nutritional benefits, or a bit of both? And that helps you make the decisions for how you're going about the dish. And so similarly, when you're looking at a collaborator, you think like, am I using this for its texture, its nutritional benefits? And, and then you can hopefully uh, better gauge uh, your decision making there. Absolutely. Could you uh, talk a little bit about uh, your role as a mentor uh, at the University of New Haven and what your role is there? Yeah, so um, I was approached by, so they have a micro MBA program, which is newer. Um, and I was approached by one of their, um, you know, outreach people. And um, I was, I'll be honest, I was not um, initially interested. It's kind of like, you know, it's another thing to do, right? And, you know, <laughs> in sharing my nature of saying yes. Yeah. Like, what is the investment in time um, of this so that I can, you know, manage expectations on both ends, mine and, and theirs. Um, and really what their their goal is, is to promote the micro MBA program, um, which is, is a series of classes that kind of mirror the full MBA program. Um, they want, they, they typically prefer that the people who are advisors are um, taking their program and giving feedback on the program. I elected not to take the program because there was a cost associated. Oh, like they gave a discount, but I'll, it wasn't a discount that was worthwhile to me. So I'm just like, you know what? Like I'll continue to champion the program. Um, if they, so they'll pair me up with somebody who's going through the program to kind of help them with like real world experience based off of the different courses that they offer. Um, there's opportunities to speak, um, going out into the community and sharing some of the benefits of the program and, and even using, you know, the platform to build relationships and network outside of that, right? Like how is this going to into my own brand? So, you know, to your point, looking at, you know, what is the North star and how can I use this to my advantage, um, while also benefiting them? was a big part of the decision-making process and um you know where i decided that i wasn't going to take their course but i'll continue to champion their program um that's kind of how I, how I landed on that and it's been a very low lift like i think their expectation is like two or three meetings a year um okay so we haven't had any meetings yet this year because the year just started right um, 
two to three meetings, and then all the first three days. <laughs> but um, you know, it, it's kind of cool, right? Um, so I I don't have an MBA, so I was just I was very I don't know if impressed is the word. Um, honored, flattered, yeah. Oh, okay, flattered, honored, yeah, by them approaching me, and, and I think kind of speaks to the work that I have done um, in my own business. And I don't even remember how they discovered me in my work, probably through Forbes, but um, I live in Connecticut. So yeah. that's a really cool sentence to say, by the way. I don't know yeah. how they discovered me, probably through <laughs> Forbes. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely. I get, I, I get um, connection requests based off of some of the articles that I've written. And, um, I, sometimes I can, you know, ask directly and say, Hey, like, how did you find out about me? And other times I'm just, I just go with it. But, um, that was, that is one of the benefits of having the columns before, like so many people see it. I can't control who does, who doesn't, but, um, certainly they'll see something in me through the way that I articulate the different topics or my bio. And they're like, Hey, I want to know this guy. So I'm going to talk to him. But yeah, it's been cool. It's been, you know, it's 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 definitely a resume builder. Um, I've been more active in um, padding my experience with volunteer opportunities through um, being on boards or supporting roles to organize to nonprofits and organizations um, that mean something to me. I think that that's really important because um, in this season, I think of of people may be in the same demographic age-wise to me, there is kind of an inclination to join boards just for the sake of saying, hey, I'm on a board. Um, right. For me, if I'm going to join a board, like I have to, I have to like agree with the mission. Like I have to resonate with my values um, and not just, oh, this is an opportunity that sounds cool. So um, I, uh, I'm, I'm on one board now, um, outside of this, this is a, a board advisor role. Um, and I'll probably look to join another board this year if an opportunity presents itself for um, the two organizations that I'm looking at. Could you talk a little bit about your authority and the financial space? I know you started as a teller at Bank of America way back when and then worked your way up the ranks. Uh, could you talk a little bit about how you became a voice of authority in this space? Yeah, it... um. It's an interesting journey to kind of reflect back on because I don't think that I started or even realized that I was building authority in the space specifically. Um, like it wasn't my intention at all. Um, I started working in banking because I needed a job. And through that, I realized that there was a lot that I did not know about financial products and services and, um, and uh, personal finance as a whole. Yeah. So, of course, you have to learn how to sell the products and services of the organization that you're working for. And so that was kind of like the learning curve in the banking world. And most of my clients earlier on were what we considered mass affluent. So that means that they had money, right? Um, a lot of times they were uh, preferred customers because of the balances that they kept or private clients or you know, wealth managed clients. And so in that, there was an expectation around service and business acumen that those clients had in, you know, you sitting in front of them and having an effective conversation to either try and sway them to the products and services that the bank offered or understanding how they're using products and services outside of the bank. And um, as I learned, I would take, you know, those things home and share them with my friends and my family who didn't know. Um, and encourage them to engage with banks through the products and services that they offered and, and engage in these activities and these behaviors. Um, and I'm I'm a lifelong learner. So as I learned, I, as I learned more, I wanted to learn more. And um, started building a brand around personal finance specifically, probably in 2019. Um, started writing for a variety of publications, started um joining podcasts and uh, kind of curating my social media feed around personal finance. But at the time it was really like vanilla, like just very plain, very, um, it's like repetitive. I felt at the time that there was just 
an oversaturation in the market of people talking about personal finance because everybody was talking about it the same way. And then I wrote Financially Irresponsible, which um, is my second book. And I talked, I, I, my goal was to talk about money differently. Um, and so how can you talk about money differently than it's been talked about? And I thought by incorporating my own experiences, my own perspectives, and um, and talking about your mental and spiritual relationship with money, that that would be a different take on a very popular topic. And uh, I know I was right. <laughs> I was right. It was received very well. It continues to be received very well. And I was talking about a lot of things very intuitively that I would find were supported by evidence in financial therapy. But I didn't know that financial therapy existed. And so um, when, you know, those worlds collided for me, I was like, oh, okay, like this is kind of like home, right? Like the people that are talking about this topic understand what I'm talking about. And now I have the vocabulary to describe what I'm talking about um, with kind of more authority, right? So um, to our earlier point that I made, right, um, because financial therapy has been kind of a behind the scenes, um, I would say gate kept um, aspect of personal finance because so much of it is wrapped up in academia. Um, being able to come out and share that with my audiences across social media, across um, digital media, through publications, across podcasts, um, just really for the everyday person, I've noticed a lot of people like, hmm, what's that? Or, oh, wow, that, that resonates. I can relate to that. Or I've experienced that. Tell me more. And, um, I've, you know, I've, I, people have come to me and they're like, Rock him like you're everywhere. <laughs> and I, I think that's the biggest compliment. But again, going back to, you know, an earlier point that we made, it was also a really big distractor for me because I'm writing, I'm speaking, you know, on podcasts, I'm featured in these different publications, I'm chasing quotes, I'm, um, you know, just doing all of these things. And so, yeah, people feel like I'm everywhere. But um, the trade off there was there was no true North Star in figuring out how do I structure this in a way that um, generates revenue for me and my business. Um, for a long time, it was really just kind of charity, um, which is not a bad thing by any means. Certainly, it's given me a lot of the foundation to that authority that you mentioned, right? Just being very willing to share anywhere and everywhere. Um, but last year for me was kind of the cementing of that authority through, uh, I mean, so many different avenues of recognition, awards, um, you know, being able to get a column with Forbes, um, my own newsletter and the success that I've had there, the different podcasts and um, features that I've had in publications uh, that I knew were coming or that I didn't know was coming. And so it's like, all right, cool. Like, now people recognize you in this space for being a thought leader on this topic. You've done enough of the charity work. Now it's time for you to like start eating off of this. And um, and I think that that's important to share because I left, you know, my banking career in 2021 to pursue entrepreneurship. And so coming up on three years now on my own, financially, it it doesn't make sense for me to give away so so much for free. But, um, you know, I tell people, I've been telling people the last couple of weeks, like 2023 was a really good, probably my best year ever, like in business and personal, like there was just so much that I was able to do, but it was also like my worst year ever financially because I was still giving away so much. I was spending more than I was making. Um, and, you know, I was in a position of privilege, certainly, to be able to do that. But now, you know, I'm paying for it, <laughs> literally and figuratively. So, um, you know, I think that kind of brings it all home when I talk about this, like, laser focus on what is pushing me towards my goals. Um, part of that is the realization, but also part of that is out of necessity, right? If I want to continue to 
uh, maintain my lifestyle in the way that I've grown accustomed to over the last three years. I need to make money or I need to be okay with going back to work and getting a salary so that I can subsidize doing this work as, as an authority. Uh, there's, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just, it's not my preferred approach to lifestyle. Right now. Sure. And it, it makes sense if you're learning as you go and becoming uh, more helpful, really, uh, that you should be paid. And also, the more money you make, the more of an impact you can make. Um, so if you're doing it for the right reasons, like they say, money is just an amplifier. It doesn't really change anything. If you had bad intentions, then it, it, it amplifies those bad intentions. If you have good intentions, it amplifies those good intentions. So sounds like you've got the latter. Um, hope I'm not wrong. <laughs> so... Uh, what would you tell people like you, you mentioned, um, you know, exploring or um, perhaps exposing uh, to the person their mental and spiritual um, connection with money, which is terminology I've not yet uh, heard paired together. Uh, it, I'm trying to kind of frame this for an audience that may not be familiar with the concept of financial trauma, financial therapy. Is this something that you could put down on a one pager and see like a significant improvement in your relationship with money? On a one pager, I don't think so. Um, okay, there are so many avenues and approaches to understanding the role of money in our lives. Um, I mean, it would have to be a pretty big page, right? <laughs> and you can only like really, really high level approach some of these things. There are a lot of disciplines under the umbrella of financial therapy that um, speak to financial trauma or your um, relationship with money, right? Like um, internal family systems being one of them, IFS talks, um, or it's, it's being used in financial therapy to address issues with money. Um, attachment theory, which yeah. has been traditionally used in um, relationships between uh, mostly couples, but in relationships as a whole, is looked at as an approach to how you engage with money. Um, money disorders, which is a specifically coined um, kind of uh, reflection, if you will, on how you engage with money um, is is being used to look at behaviors. Um, and I mean, there's so much more that I, I'm, I, I don't tend to be an expert in any of those disciplines, but um, somatic healing, um, practices are being looked at to impact or address issues with money. And so we, I think the key to um, answering your question really is understanding that money is more than uh, the symbol that it represents, right? It's more than the currency. It's more than, you know, what's in your bank account. Um, right. We have to uh, recognize that energy uh, is money or our money is energy, right? And so how does that show up in your body? Um, when you think about the word budget or the task of establishing a budget, do you feel a reaction to that? Is that reaction positive? Is that reaction negative? When you think about the inability to uh, to afford something in a particular moment that you might feel like you need, um, why why is that? When you think about the barrage of, um, I call them attacks, but marketing tactics that are used to encourage you to spend, spend, spend. You need this. You need this. You need this now. You need this yesterday. Uh, how are you combating um, the, I mean, there's hundreds of thousands of dollars that are put into research and development to really focus on the marketing and psychology of um, creating artificial scarcity, right? So like buy now or you'll never have an opportunity to buy it again. So we see these sales cycles, particularly coming off the heels of, you know, the holiday season where um, people are feeling real stress, real anxiety about not being able to afford gifts for their family members or their children or their spouse um, or partner. And, um, you know, it's just it's, it's a it's a habit, it's a routine that we've learned to embrace as a part of the course of our year. Um, how much damage is it going to do to your relationship to not buy a gift during Christmas or, you know, to any relationship for that matter that you have? Um, what kind of bullying takes place in um, the process of gift giving? Um, I'm going through a course right now called Trauma of Money, 
And within that course, there was a concept raised around consensual gift giving. And the question that was asked of us was, when you are giving or receiving a gift, who is that for? Right? Are you receiving a gift for somebody else? Are you receiving a gift for yourself? And inversely, are you giving a gift for somebody else? Or are you giving a gift for yourself? Well, on the surface, it might seem like, well, yeah, if I'm buying somebody a gift, I'm buying it for them. But what are your intentions tied into that gift giving? Do you expect that because I spent over $100 on this gift for my partner, that my partner in turn is going to spend over $100 in giving a gift back to me? Um, or is gift giving used as a, as a manipulative tactic to say like, oh, well, I gave you a gift like, you know, later on, I'm going to be expecting something from you in return. Um, or if you refuse to give a gift. So I talk about this practice within, you know, the corporate setting that I wasn't really a big fan of where, um, you know, the coworkers would all gather and they're like, oh, you know, let's pull our money together to buy a gift for our boss. Whether you like the boss or you didn't like the boss, didn't matter. There's this peer pressure of, well, everybody's buying a gift, so I got to contribute um, whether I have it or I don't have it. Um, some people feel real anxiety and real stress around that practice. And so we, the practice of financial therapy, um, as I understand it, is to help people feel better about the decisions and the behaviors related to money, um, you know, within, the own, within their own dynamic or their own world of navigating those money experiences. And there is such a spectrum that exists when it comes to the relationship that individuals have with their money uh, as a means for control, as a means for safety, as a means for power. And um, when you look at people who experience poverty um, and what money represents to them, people who have experienced wealth or who maybe haven't experienced wealth but have never wanted for anything, what does money mean for them? Um, does it represent status? Does it represent power? Does it represent control? Um, how do you feel when you are overwhelmed by debt and you can't pay your bills on time? Is there a tie into your self-esteem? Um, is there a tie into the way that other people perceive you? And so, um, again, like, I mean, I keep listing examples. There, right. um, there's so many avenues to approach um, what money represents in our lives and how do we help to um, heal from the trauma of those experiences that are related to money, but um, are not necessarily related to the amount of money that you have in your bank account or the amount of money that you make from your job. Thank you for for kind of peeling back the layers a little bit. I, I can tell there's many more uh, and it's, it's it really is like, endless. I'd never thought of most of what you said before, at least not the way that you you said it. Uh, so definitely not a one pager. And I could see how your your role as like a consultant or coach would be a bit of an exploration, a collaboration together, because each thing that they discover or share would then um, expose one more layer, uh, because it seems to be a very deep rooted and um, interconnected um situation. Like you mentioned attachment theory um, and uh, family systems and uh, elements of, of uh, you know, demographics and all sorts of stuff. And yeah, it's uh, geography. So um, what's like, I realize we're coming up on time, but that was a lot. What would you leave people with, let's say like a one or two liner um, that, uh, that they should like remember about uh, financial trauma or financial therapy and um, what you do. Yeah. So I think it's important to, to underscore that this is the work that I do. Right. So, um, I am an accredited financial counselor and, um, I, I practice financial therapy and they're similar, but different disciplines. Um, and so in underscoring that, I think it's also important to share that there are different types of financial professionals out there who can help with different aspects of your money management. Right. So um, as a financial counselor, that might look like helping people uh, align their values and their goals in accomplishing those goals, whether that be debt elimination, whether that be, um, you know, learning about credit, learning about investments, 
establishing a budget, et cetera. So there's, you know, if you have a financial goal and you're having a hard time accomplishing that goal, there could be a mixed match of your value and goals, your value system and the goals that you have. Um, as a financial therapist, it's less about the numbers and more about the feelings, right? So all that I just shared um, are, are different avenues for what, you know, would require or what would, um, I don't want to say require, what would be appropriate for a financial therapist. But those things are not things that you're going to go see a CFP about, right? A, a certified financial planner is going to do more so um, lifetime um, or life event planning around uh, where you are, where you'd like to be, estate planning, tax um, tax strategy, um, you know, investment, you know, the directions there. Um, where a CPA is going to do more um, tax planning or tax strategy, right? So I think it's important um, as we toss around a lot of these titles and functions of financial professionals for the consumer to understand what their goals are and what these professionals can help them do. Right. A good financial counselor or financial therapist is going to frequently refer out for the areas that they're not focused on. They're not going to try to every hat and a good financial professional should do the same. Um, but as more people learn about financial therapy, um, I'm, I would say 85 to 95% of people are going to recognize that there is um, some kind of uh, play between their relationship with money on a psychological level or on a spiritual level or on a behavioral level that can benefit from talking from, to a financial therapist, especially in um, such a capitalist-driven society, right? Um, consumerism is a problem. And, um, you know, income inequality is a problem. Some people might feel uh, low self-esteem as a result of where they fall in kind of the social classes. And so financial therapy can help with that as well. Um, so, yeah. I that that's that's my my kind of two cents on it. I'm gonna continue, yeah. continue to champion the cause of financial therapy, um, and the role of financial therapy in helping people to heal from or identify their financial trauma. And um, and I'm happy to have conversations around what that looks like and being able to provide that as a service to people. That's great. And if people want to uh, see you, uh, I guess they could go to your LinkedIn page, maybe see you in the a Forbes column. Is there anywhere else that you would point them? Yeah, I'm pretty active across social media. So um, Instagram, uh, Twitter, or X, formerly known as Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, as you said, and my website probably be the best place to direct people. So that's rockhemsabree.com. Okay. Um, and through that platform, uh, you know, there is a way to navigate to everywhere else. Um, and specifically, if there's um, an inquiry around services that I provide, um, that that's a good place to get me. Well, that's great. Thank you, Rakim, for, for talking to me today. It was a lot of fun. Definitely. I appreciate you having me.